believe that we're going to need more than one lecture from the greatest theologian that the world has ever seen, and certainly the most formative one to this very day in South Africa. And so, as we start the Reformation proper, I would like to present in this lecture John Calvin's doctrine of law as the tool of Christian Reconstruction, as I understand it. And then in the following lecture, John Calvin's eschatology as the goal that he anticipated would be reached, especially through the application of his two. Now, Calvin was not only interested in law as an instrument. There were other instruments that he felt needed to be utilized by the church, such as the instrumentality of faith. But I do not believe that any student of Calvin would deny that law is an extremely important instrument in Calvin's doctrine of reconstruction. I mean, after all, Calvin, as a young man, wanted to be a lawyer. He studied law, jurisprudence, that is. Uh, he wrote a massive work on Seneca's De Clementia, concerning clemency, uh, and other works uh, which have a lot of juridical implications. And uh, he studied so far in law at his first university colleges and became so proficient that his law professor, before he switched from law to grace, often asked Calvin to lecture in law in the classroom, which he did very, very successfully. And one can indeed see this tremendous emphasis on law and duly constituted authority and judicial process permeating John Calvin in his whole approach even when he became more and more interested in and fascinated by um, theology. You can see this, of course, in the many letters which he wrote to the kings and queens and dukes and duchesses of Europe, even after becoming a theologian. His masterly letter to Francis, King of France, for example, often included in the introduction to his Institutes of the Christian Religion, in which he urges King Francis as the legal sovereign of Calvin's own homeland of France to address himself to the socio-political conditions of his beloved fatherland and to implement uh, something of the programs that Calvin was himself developing on the basis of the teaching of the word of God for the salvation of the society of his motherland. Then too, there are the frequent visits of John Calvin to René, the Duchess of Ferrara in Italy, for a similar purpose. Calvin's constant stream of letters uh, and dedication of many of his works to sovereigns such as Edward the sixth in England and the urging of Britain uh, toward a more law-abiding position in terms of Calvin's understanding of the word of God. And we see this emphasis on law in Calvin also in his relation to socio-political issues which confronted him from time to time. You know that after he became strong enough in Geneva, and it took him quite a while to achieve that, he turned against gambling and put the gamblers out of business in Geneva. He regarded dancing as improper and uh, was able to secure legislation, local legislation, against that. He was able, if not quite to wipe out, at any rate, to suppress the open exercise of prostitution in Geneva, perhaps the most libertine city in the whole of Europe before he got there. And then out of Christian compassion, many of these unfortunate women were rounded up and 
usefully re-employed in factories and industry which Calvin got involved in in promoting it all to the glory of God. He was involved in city planning to some extent. He was concerned about the hygiene of Geneva, sponsored the institution of a better sewerage system. Uh, these to Calvin were not secular affairs um, which uh, full-time servants of the Lord should rather not get involved in. These were means of glorifying God by operating in these areas <coughs> to his glory while at the same time sending out missionaries. And let me say that of all of the Protestant reformers Calvin was the only one who had any kind of a missionary outreach and who attempted to push Christianity out by sending forth emissaries into the regions beyond. Calvin also got involved into education, not only into primary and secondary education, but also into tertiary education, setting up the academy in Geneva, and, of course, the theological seminary where he and after him, Beza taught. He uh, also um, developed the doctrine of God being the author of law, which the later Calvinist, Willem Giesink, that is G-E-E-S-I-N-K, in Holland, calls theonomy if we would take the trouble to read Giesink's 1931 Reformed Ethics uh, Volume 2 we would see that he claims that uh, theonomy is the legislation inspired by God grounded in God's sovereign law of creation the peculiarity of Calvinism is the idea that God is Lord sovereignty and the lawgiver, theonomy, of all men. This one can already find in Calvin, in his sketch of the Christian life, when Calvin says, quote, We are God's property and not our own sovereignty, and let his will then have the paramount sway over all our deeds, theonomy. The principle of theonomy was therefore more purely preserved in the old Protestant theology than it was with Rome where it received a heteronymous flavor from the church. Thus far, Giesink in his comments on the work of John Calvin. Indeed, we can see this in his attitude towards the various drunks and troublemakers that turned up in his church while he was preaching from time to time. Nicholas Berthier uh, and others whom he ordered not be admitted to the sacrament of the Lord's table on account of their public uproariousness. Now, we see it too in the trial of that damnable man, Michael Servetus, enemy of God and man. And here I'd like to say a few words because Calvin has, I think, been so unjustly maligned and misrepresented even by some uh, apologetic Calvinists who really had no business, in my opinion, apologizing for Calvin's role uh, in this. You recall that some of them felt constrained to set up a monument uh, while praising Calvin also to admit his shortcomings in this one particular area. But the more I consider the uh, role of John Calvin in Servetus, uh, the more I'm constrained that uh, he really didn't make any uh, errors of judgment at all. And I may say that this view that I have is not just my own, it is shared by the person that Dr. Van Til considers to be the greatest living Christian philosopher in the world, Hendrik Stoker of South Africa. Stoker, and I'll say this a little later, wrote an excellent work on Calvin and Servetus. Uh, in which he collates and brings out many of the true facts. What are the facts? Well, the facts are that this man Servetus was a troublemaker wherever he went in Europe. He was uh, not merely a, um, a heretic 
uh, and an apostate, uh, but he was a man but incited riots in most of the places where he went. He had very little common sense. He had caused a lot of social upheaval uh, and violence in Spain so that the Spanish Inquisition were after him to do him to death. And uh, he had made some appalling statements, not content with merely denying the Trinity. He had viciously and blasphemously and publicly asserted that the Holy Trinity was a dog with three heads. And we need to see something of Calvin's compassion toward this man. While all this was going on, Calvin was sending him correspondence, copies of his works, praying that God may use these works to bring about the conversion of Servetus, rather than his inglorious death. But Servetus seems to have been born for trouble, and of all the places on earth uh, to which to flee for refuge from the long arm of the Spanish Inquisition, uh, this man, devoid of all common sense, chose Geneva. And it so happened that Calvin was preaching, and behold, he lifted up his eyes and saw in front of him in one of the pews Michael Servetus. Well, the government of Geneva put out a warrant for Servetus' arrest and apprehended him and brought him to trial uh, on the charge of blasphemy and incitement to civil rebellion. Very important for us to see this latter aspect. And Calvin, a theological specialist in Geneva, was subpoenaed by the all-Swiss, non-Calvinistic, or I should say only very mildly Calvinistic, judicial bench. Calvin was subpoenaed as a witness to give evidence at the trial of Servetus. And Calvin very willingly did uh, appear in court. And Calvin indeed said, that uh, in his judgment Servetus was a troublemaker and a blasphemer and Calvin uh, did not disagree with the penalty that the chiefly libertine bench of jurists uh, proposed to give to Servetus for his uh, civil disobedience and incitement to riot namely the penalty of death but Calvin did not feel that the mode of death that was awarded by the bench was appropriate, for they had recommended death by burning at the stake. And the more Calvin thought of it, the more he felt that that was a cruel and an unnecessary punishment. And so Calvin then petitioned the court for clemency towards Servetus to have the penalty by burning commuted to penalty by a less, the death penalty by a less painful means such as decapitation. At which point the court uh, reminded Calvin that he'd only been subpoenaed to give evidence as to the facts and had better not interfere in what the judges thought was the appropriate penalty and further reminded Calvin that he was not even a Swiss citizen, as they were, but was simply a French citizen, resident in Switzerland, and that he had better remember his place. It's important for us to realize this, to see the uh, lack of influence that Calvin had in many respects to govern the course of events. At any rate, against Calvin's wishes, the man's sentence uh, to be put to death by burning was sustained, and Calvin then did a very wonderful and compassionate thing. He applied for permission and secured it to visit Servetus in his cell just before he was to be burned. And Calvin in his cell patiently and lovingly attempted to convert Servetus who had maligned the Trinity as a dog with three heads uh, to convert Servetus to Trinitarianism indicating that if Servetus would make a Trinitarian confession, Calvin himself would risk his prestige in Geneva to try to get the case reconsidered. But Servetus at least was a brave man, and he flatly refused uh, to make any kind of a Trinitarian profession. 
the most he would say to Calvin was this, Well, I do believe that Christ is the Son of God, but I certainly don't believe that Christ is God the Son. And with reluctance, Calvin then said, Well, Michael, I'm afraid there is nothing more that I can do for you. Calvin left the jail, and Servetus went to the pyre, and that was that. I don't know how you feel about that, but if the facts are as I apprehend them and as I've tried to state, I really can't see that Calvin erred in that process. And frankly, I think he behaved much better towards Servetus than anyone else in the whole of Europe at that time, in justice and in kindness and with prudence uh, with whom Servetus had had to deal. Of course, this doesn't mean that Calvin was uh, lukewarm on the matter of penalties. I'm so very grateful that um, Jim Jordan here is beginning to reproduce these previously almost totally inaccessible sermons of Calvin on Deuteronomy, and I noted there a few sentences that uh, I would just like to recite, uh, where Calvin is dealing with the execution of rebellious children uh, in Deuteronomy, and he says that if a man has laid the bridle upon his child's neck and let him play as a loose coat, then he deserves to have his eyes picked out by him because he was negligent in correcting him. And then later Calvin again says, fathers and mothers should bring their children before judges to have them put to death, that is in those cases uh, where it would not otherwise be possible or prudent until the parents have attempted all the remedies that can be. A case where they're dealing with a matter of great pride and of stubbornness. We are speaking here, says Calvin, of such unreformable stoutness and stubbornness as to be past remedy by themselves and therefore are ready to resort to the judge. If fathers and mothers come to this place of declaring their children to be stubborn and unreformable, if they cannot first protest that they have done their duties in chastising them. And so too, uh, there's a section in Calvin's sermons that we're happy to have had our attention brought to dealing with the death penalty. It's an analysis of the uh, punishment of idolaters in terms of Deuteronomy chapter 13. And uh, the sermon goes into it in quite a lot of detail. I'll say something to that myself later when we get to the uh, burning of witches. And finally, we have here material dealing with the various courts of appeal, which again show the ex-jurist Calvin's insistence in the appropriateness of God being honored in the judicial matters of the land. Uh, kings and princes and magistrates are to make laws, says Calvin. Let them understand that if they make them out of their own heads, it is a perverting and a confounding of all things. For God says, it is by me that magistrates discern what is good and expedient. Therefore, let them call upon the Spirit of God, that he may give them wisdom and discretion to make good and appropriate laws. That, of course, means that the magistrate would ask God in prayer for guidance to show him those parts of Scripture in which the Spirit is speaking, rather than expect to have a hotline to heaven and to hear voices mumbling in his head, devoid of Scripture. At any rate, um, we can see from all of this that Calvin remained very, very uh, interested in the application of law. I'd also like to point out that Calvin restored the practice of the ancient church which finally died out in the 4th century A.D. as priestcraft was beginning to become dominant in the church, as the word of God and the law of God and the Ten Commandments of the pulpit were removed from the center of the ancient churches, and as the communion table degenerating into the altar of the Mass was brought into the center of the liturgical focus in worship, Calvin 
from the beginning in Geneva brought the pulpit back into the center of the church, brought the open Bible there, and most significant of all, restored the practice of the ancient Old Testament synagogue, and indeed of the church of the first four centuries in insisting that the law of God be read from the pulpit every Sabbath day at the morning worship service. It's fascinating to read the old Calvinian liturgies, especially the Strasbourg liturgy, where the preacher, Calvin, would say, I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt have no other God before me, and the people would respond from the pew, Lord, have mercy upon us, Kyrie eleison, and bend our hearts to keep thy law. Thou shalt not kill. Lord, have mercy upon us, and incline our hearts to keep thy law, and so on and so forth. Do you know, to this very day, in every Reformed church of three or four different denominations in South Africa, this practice of John Calvin has been kept up with to this day, and I attribute that more than anything else uh, to the strength of law consciousness in the churches and the people of South African Calvinists. Well now, with those words of introduction, let us proceed. Calvin, the genius of Geneva, wrote that we must attend to the well-known division which distributes the whole law of God as promulgated by Moses into the moral, the ceremonial, and the judicial law. And we must attend to each of these parts. The judicial law, says Calvin, which God prescribed to his ancient people, is only so far abrogated as that which charity dictates should remain. For these judicial laws delivered certain forms of equity and justice, inasmuch as the law of God, which we call moral, constitutes this equity in the judicial law. And as the Calvinistic Westminster Confession of Faith observes, this general equity can require even other nations than the people of ancient Israel to observe sundry judicial laws by obliging them to comply. Now Calvin illustrates what he means here by pointing to the judicial laws against usury. He says usury is a breach of the Eighth Commandment prohibiting theft. He also points to the judicial laws against conscripting newlyweds. He says that would be a breach of the sixth commandment prohibiting murder. As regards money lending, charity dictates, comments Calvin, that the judicial law against requiring interest on loans to brethren should remain, unquote. Regarding newlywed conscriptees during warfare, the reformer comments that the lazy and the timid too were sent home so that the Israelites might learn that none were to be pressed beyond their ability. And this also depends upon that rule of equity which dictates that we should abstain from all unjust oppression. And Calvin adds in his French rendition here, this is a part of that common equity to which the Eighth Commandment has reference. Now Calvin illustrates this principle of general equity even more fully when dealing with the judicial laws against incest. He says that this is a breach of the Seventh Commandment prohibiting adultery. Nowhere in the Bible is incest clearly defined except in the book of Leviticus. And, as Calvin remarks, quote, Whatever is prescribed here is deduced from the source of rectitude himself and from the natural feelings implanted in us by him. Since it flows from the fountain of nature himself and is founded on the general principle of all laws which is perpetual and inviolable. Hence, just and reasonable men will acknowledge 
that even amongst heathen nations this law was accounted indissoluble as if implanted and engraved on the hearts of men. If it be objected that such marriages are not prohibited to us in the New Testament, I reply that the marriage of a father with his daughter is not forbidden there in the New Testament. But shall such a marriage therefore be lawful for those who are near of kin to form promiscuous connections? No. What's Calvin saying? He's saying you don't have to have a New Testament text against incest to make it wrong. If it's condemned as wrong in the Old Testament, that's sufficient. He says elsewhere you don't have to have a clear-cut instance in the New Testament of the application of the sacrament of initiation to an infant. If you have such texts in the Old Testament, that is sufficient. What is he saying? He's saying that the proper understanding of the New Testament is this. The New Testament is not an independent portion of Scripture which can be interpreted by itself. The New Testament, he implies, is utterly dependent upon the Old Testament canon as its base, as its foundation, as its preparation. Or the way I like to put it is this. The Old Testament is the foundation and the walls of the house. The New Testament is the roof. Take away the walls and the foundation and the roof collapses. This is why you will not find me, as a Calvinist, ever claiming to be a New Testament Christian. I am not a New Testament Christian. I am a Bible Christian, a 66 book man, and usually do not carry a New Testament around with me, but only a Bible, all Scripture. Incidentally, I believe if we make a study of what the New Testament teaches as to principles of interpretation of the New Testament and of the Old, we will come to the conclusion that the New Testament teaches uh, that the hermeneutic for the interpretation of the New Testament is found and grounded in the Old. But that would take us too far afield other than to comment that I believe with all my heart this is the way that John Calvin saw it and saw it thus because the word of God, 66 books, so understands it. Now Calvin frequently applies not just the Old Testament judicial laws, but even their penalties to New Testament situations. And this he does especially in respect of idolatry and witchcraft and with regard to murder and adultery. On idolatry and witchcraft, Calvin insists that even in New Testament times, quote, Paul admonishes believers to seek diligently to avoid the sins of divination and astrology and casting spells and witchcrafts and working with charms and conducting seances and wizardry and necromancy, the consultation of the dead, which provoke God's wrath against the disobedient Ephesians 5 verse 6 unquote. what's Calvin saying he's saying the New Testament teaches this these prohibitions Ephesians 5 6 properly interpreted uh, just as much as does the Old Testament he goes on to tell us that in a well constituted polity or political government profane men are by no means to be tolerated men by whom religion is subverted. Indeed, Calvin personally knew a Genevan called René, whose wife admitted that she had poisoned 18 people, and he himself, René, about four or five more people. At René's capital punishment, Calvin wrote to a friend, the power of the Lord was wonderfully revealed. Both René and his wife died joyfully in very great assurance of faith and with clear evidence of repentance. Today, of course, we would have limp-hearted people say, well, they accepted Jesus as their Savior. Therefore, this lets them off the hook. No, not so, said Calvin. But let us thank God that they did repent so that even as that punishment which is proper and appropriate is administered to them, 
we can thank God for his power in moving them to repentance and see the great joy with which they then died. Isn't this the penitent thief on the cross? Ranting and raving and cursing Jesus together with the other one who didn't repent until suddenly, through the operation of the Holy Spirit, he acknowledges the Lordship of Jesus. Remember thee, Lord, when thou comest into thy kingdom. The sweet words of the Lord Jesus, truly I tell you today, you shall be with me in paradise. And then the other unrepentant thief going on scoffing and the now penitent and faithful Christian dying robber, man of violence, saying, look, we at least deserve this punishment of death. What are you griping about? I'm not griping. I accept it willingly. But this man in the middle has done nothing that merits it. And so I believe Calvin was on good ground, ground of the Lord Jesus and Calvary in his views as to these punishments. So too, of course, where Paul, totally innocent, says when he's on trial, well, I certainly do not object uh, to being put to death if I have done anything which is worthy of death, thereby admitting that there are things that are worthy of death. And if the evidence is there, one would have to accept it. On adultery, as also on murder, Calvin is even more specific than he is in idolatry. Capital punishment shall be decreed against adulterers says Calvin. We must needs abide by God's inviolable decree. And again, says Calvin, it appears how greatly God abominates adultery, since he pronounces capital punishment against it. Nay, by the universal law of the Gentiles, the punishment of death was always awarded to adultery. Therefore, it is all the baser and more shameful in Christians not to imitate at least the heathen. Sadly, continues Calvin, some of those who boast themselves of the Christian name are so tender and remiss that they visit this execrable offense with a very light reproof. Indeed, sometimes even Christian magistrates who have been invested with a sword for the correction of crime have absurdly imitated the example of Christ who dismissed the woman taken into adultery. Here people fail to see, says Calvin, that Christ was not then discharging the duties of a judge. What was he doing? Discharging the duties of a savior. Doctrine of sphere sovereignty in Calvin, later developed and perfected in Kuyper and Doyovit and Stoker and others. But modern Christian judges' relaxation of the penalty has flowed from gross ignorance, says Calvin, inasmuch as properly tried and duly condemned adulterers and adulteresses ought to have been stoned, unquote, John Calvin, and executed. You know that the great southern Presbyterian Dabney, just a little more than a hundred years ago, felt that uh, the death penalty was a suitable way to deal with proven adultery. You know that uh, until very recently, and if I'm not mistaken even today, although the application of the law is relaxed, adultery is a crime in Canada. Uh, you know that it's a crime in Muslim countries that are at least trying to apply a uh, very perverted form of God's special revelation. And I must tell you that adultery was regarded as a very serious crime in Calvinist South Africa until, unfortunately, in 1914, as late as that, Fitzgerald versus Green, uh, the judge decided that uh, adultery was no longer a crime against the South African state, but could indeed, and does indeed, still give rise to uh, civil uh, procedures and awards. So then, if we but know our recent history, uh, we will have to see that all of this comes out of the matrix of the Calvinist revelation, uh, either via Roman Dutch law thereafter, or via English common law, but in both cases going back to the word of God in general and to the Old Testament in particular. Calvin then insists on the threefold use of the law the pedagogical use, 
the normative use and the political or civic use. Moreover, he also notes that the duty of magistrates extends to both tables of the law of the Ten Commandments. According to scripture, he says, as well as according to profane writers. Small wonder then that Calvin goes on to state in his own French confession of 1559, Article 39, that God put the sword in the hand of the state to resist not only sins against the second, but also against the first table of the law. It's true, concedes Calvin, that there are some men not otherwise ill-disposed to whom it appears that our condition under the gospel is different from that of the ancient people under the law. But when human judges consecrate their work to the promotion of Christ's kingdom, I deny that on that account its nature is changed. For God did not impose on himself an eternal law that he should never bring kings under his subjection. Here the beautiful connection and bridge between Calvin's doctrine of law and his doctrine of future expectations. God did not impose upon himself an eternal law so that he should never bring kings under his subjection, never tame their violence, nor change them from being cruel persecutors into the patrons and guardians and nursing fathers of the church. This is admirably expressed in the words of Moses to the magistrates when he reminds them that judgment must be passed according to the law of God. So Calvin's saying that God set up this law in eternity past and the penalties for its transgression, not to some kind of a platonic model uh, that would be culturally irrelevant in the real world, but because God also at the time he did that foresaw from all eternity that progressively and finally kings and magistrates would be brought into submission to this law and would use their influence to make their legal systems conform with this law. Do you see the relationship between the law of God and God's eschatological purposes with mankind on this earth? Indeed, continues Calvin, the law of God forbids to steal. The punishment appointed for theft in the civil polity of the Jews may be seen in Exodus 22. Very ancient laws of other nations published theft by exacting the double of what was stolen, while subsequent laws made a distinction between theft manifest and not manifest. Other laws went the length of punishing with exile or with branding, while others made the punishment capital. Among the Jews, the punishment of the false witness was to do unto him as he had thought to have done with his brother. Deuteronomy 19 verse 19. In some countries, the punishment is infamy. In others, hanging. In others, crucifixion. All laws alike avenge murder with blood. But the kinds of death are different. In some countries, Adultery was punished more severely, in others more leniently. Yet we see that amidst this diversity, they all tend to the same end, for they all with one mouth declare against those crimes, not against those sins, please, against those crimes, which are condemned by the eternal law of God. Now then, that of course is from the fourth book of the Institutes, and to me it's it's been amazing that in recent months uh, we have had those who do not think that the laws of God and their punishments are relevant or that Calvin considered them to be relevant appeal to this passage. I really don't know why. Because in this very passage, uh, Calvin is arguing that these crimes need to be punished. It's true he's saying that it's not so much of a big deal as to whether a murderer is uh, hanged or whether he's crucified or whether he's disposed of in some other way but he says please notice that all laws everywhere avenge murder with bloodshedding. You see 
Calvin is not here saying it doesn't really matter whether you punish adultery with death or with a fine or with banishment he's saying that there are different ways in which the adulterer uh, can be punished but it's a severe punishment in each case and when he's dealing with capital crimes here he's saying that in spite of the way in which the capital crime is punished it is always punished capitally and this point of what Calvin is saying in this citation seems to have escaped the attention of men who have been careful in their interpretation of reformer elsewhere apart from the fact that their interpretation of this passage in the institutes uh, constitutes a flagrant head-on co collision with what Calvin is indisputably saying in his commentary on the harmony of uh, the, uh, the four books of Moses but now not only Calvin but also Calvin's brother-in-law William Whittingham the author and collator of the Geneva Bible comments together with John Knox who probably had a hand in that work at the head of Exodus chapter 21 in the Geneva Bible that these judicial laws are temporal not temporary but temporal that means for the time temporal in the Doyavidian sense if you wish they are temporal and civil ordinances appointed by God touching servitude murders and wrongs for they are judgments given to bridle our corrupt nature notice it doesn't say the corrupt nature of the ancient Jews they are given to bridle our corrupt nature which else would break out into all mischief and cruelty further the Geneva Bible comments at Exodus 23 verses 4 and 5 that because we be bound to do good to our enemy's beast much more to our enemy himself Matthew 5:44. what's the Geneva Bible saying saying that we Christians are to understand the true concrete application of Matthew 5:44 in the New Testament by referring to the similar text in Exodus 23 verses 4 through 5 in the old and whereas God commands us to help up our enemy off from under his burden will he suffer us to cast down our brethren with heavy burdens asked the Geneva Bible no way it is against this background then that God undertook to bring his law abiding people both Old Testament Israelites and New Testament Christians into the promised land the whole world bit by bit to conquer it Calvin remarks God would not merely tell his people to conquer but he would supply the means of the conquest too the judicial laws were such a means similarly so too were the hornets which God sent against the heathen in fact these hornets were a, were a manifestation of God's wrath against sin and crime in God's judicial punishment of pagan lawbreakers as well as a manifestation of his mercy of his mercy and his love toward his own elect similarly just as some of the proofs of God's favor says Calvin include fecundity and an abundance of the fruit of the earth whereas the Egyptians were subject to various maladies the Israelites would be free by special privilege from the hornets only if they obeyed God's law it would be advantageous to them that God should consume their enemies by degrees through the hornets comments Calvin in this respect also says Calvin God was considering the welfare of his people lest the wild beasts should rush in upon the bare and deserted land and prove more troublesome than the enemies themselves would have been as it was through the people's slackness 
the Israelites were long mixed with their enemies because they executed with too little energy the vengeance of God. But if no such inactivity had delayed the fulfillment of the promise, they would have found that the final destruction of the nations by God would have been delayed no longer than was good for them. Unquote Calvin. This implies, I think, that we Christians too are under God in order to dispossess the worldlings. We are to do so little by little. We are certainly to do so in a constitutional way. But they are to be dispossessed of their own ill-gotten assets. Thus, Christians are to grow stronger as worldlings grow weaker. This is to occur down through the Christian centuries, either by the progressive conversion of the worldlings to Christ, or otherwise by their progressive dethronement from positions of influence. And this is to be achieved in terms of our Christian obedience to the Great Commission to preach the gospel to every creature and to turn all nations into Christ's disciples and to teach them all things whatsoever the pre-incarnate Christ too has ever revealed including the laws of Moses. For, as Calvin comments, quote, in condemning thus far the superstitions which are vicious in themselves God prescribes what he would have to be observed even to the end of the world. Whatever tends to foster superstition should be removed. Unquote Calvin. If we have a few minutes left, perhaps at this stage I can see if there are any questions that anyone would like to raise on any of the material that we've been covering up to this point. Are there any questions or discussion? Yes, sir. I believe, let, let me, uh, the question is, what do I think of Calvin's view of biblical law? Is it just like the law of nations or what? Well, the first thing is, we need to see that uh, Calvin uh, didn't arrive at a finality in his positions immediately. Uh, his views, such as his view on the Sabbath, for example, underwent a deepening over several generations and a final maturation. Second, no one of us, no matter when we live, can in the space of 70 years, or if we be very hale and hearty, 80 years, completely throw off all of the shackles of the past, no matter how hard we try. Calvin burnt himself out when he was but 55. However, I do believe that Calvin's doctrine of natural law was not the same as the medieval doctrine. I think the sufficient uh, in Calvin, especially I'm thinking here of his discussion of incest, when he seems to be saying that natural law itself teaches that incest is wrong, but then by that he seems to be saying and presupposing that God revealed his moral law naturally by nature on the heart of Adam before the fall, Romans chapter 2, and that even the fall has not been able totally to erase this moral law, the content of which uh, substantially agrees with that uh, moral law repromulgated later at Mount Sinai. So that what Calvin is really saying is that the heathens know these things by nature not because they know it devoid and uh, apart from God but they know it because God has revealed it to their ancestor because God has preserved that natural revelation in the heart of the heathen and there Calvin would be linking up with what the Apostle Paul is saying in Romans chapter 1 that the heathen do know God his power and I would think too his morality that they hold down this truth in their unrighteousness with a guilty conscience that of course takes us to Van Til but I believe that this is basically the position that Calvin arrived at on natural law
This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.